Good afternoon. Thank you so much for being with us. It is Tuesday, December 8th. Busy show coming up. We just got some more details announced from BC's finance minister on how the COVID-19 relief benefit is going to be rolled out. People can start applying online for that on December 18th. We'll have more details coming up as well. Lots of questions about how the vaccine will be rolling out in Canada. This, as we watched, or many of us, uh, watched and listened to the first vaccine administered in the UK. We'll have a bit more on that uh, later on in the program. But first, a message from the Abbotsford Police Chief. And part of the message reads, a year ago, we never thought our police officers would be enforcing public health orders. It goes on to say, however, as the second wave of COVID impacted us all and public health orders have become more restrictive, the enforcement falls to the police to ensure compliance. This message put out by Police Chief Mike who joins me on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Thanks so much for being with us. You bet, Jill. Uh, did you, uh, like you say in the in the note, here we are in uh, December of 2020 uh, dealing with a scenario where police officers are enforcing public health orders. How, how much are police doing that? Or how much is the community calling on police uh, to do just that? Yeah, I think it varies by community. Um, I can tell you that last week we had 19 calls. And, uh, you know, so we attend to, to most of them. We'll certainly assess them. But, you know, as more and more people are getting frustrated and we're seeing the numbers rise, you know, more of those calls are coming in. And, uh, you know, it's putting police officers all across this province in some very challenging spots. A lot of the frustration is being vented on the police officers who are really, um, you know, trying to just do the best they can to keep everyone safe. So what kinds of calls are they getting? Uh, you know, it's it's calls of, of certainly, you know, people gathering at homes, uh, you know, beyond the capacity that's allowed or people meeting with other people. So primarily a lot of the home calls, um, you know, we're getting the calls about, you know, uh, church services. And, uh, you know, and I can tell you, police officers are, you know, not wanting to go to your place of worship or not wanting to go to your home when you have a family or a, an event and, you know, and, and to, you know, enforce the public health orders. And that's why we try to work with people. But there does come a time where enforcement is 100% necessary and you know and it but unfortunately the the brunt of the frustration is falling on the the women and men who are out there every day are they issuing tickets in these scenarios so for example as i said to you we had 19 calls we wrote four tickets last um last week so we we assess it uh in some cases we'll attend to a location and the you know the people who would have been were we were told were at the residence are no longer there um, you know, there's some restrictions too. Police officers cannot enter into someone's dwelling to see who's in the house or not. So, you know, it's it's up to each police officer who, you know, will can exercise their discretion to make a decision of whether a ticket's warranted or perhaps it's an educational opportunity. Um, you know, and, and I'd really also encourage the public that, you know, this is there's a lot of people discussing, you know, whether they want to, you know, skirt with the rules a little bit and what they want to do for Christmas and these types of things. And perhaps you don't always have to call the police. You know, there's opportunities to talk to your friends and talk to your neighbors and, you know, of course, virtually or by phone and, and, you know, just kind of come into some agreement so the police always don't have to be, you know, that, you know, agency that's called to resolve these things. Uh, Do you get the sense people are calling police partly perhaps in some cases anyway for that reason and that they don't want to confront their neighbors and then have this rift between neighbors and it's easier for them to let the police deal with it? Yeah, no, absolutely. And we, we know we see that with other calls, you know, noise complaints and that. It's easier for the police to come in and 
you know, we do understand that. And we certainly don't want people to get into conflict, you know, and, and we're seeing that, you know, it's just, you know, people I think are, are tired and they're frustrated and we're all doing the best we can. And, you know, we're just asking for some patience, but, uh, you know, I, I get that why people would not want to have that talk, but I think there's a lot of, you know, friends and, and, you know, families that are having these conversations. And, and I think those are important and hopefully that will alleviate some of the calls that are coming to police. Cause you know, quite frankly, like I said, we never envisioned that we would be, you know, the public health order police, you know, we, we, you know, work very hard with our community to build trust and, and keep our community safe from crime. But, uh, you know, this is, this is who you have right now. And, uh, you know, we ask for some patience as our police officers, you know, who are part of your community and living with these same restrictions are trying to work with you. Uh, where would it fall then if somebody calls police and says, hey, my neighbors are having a big party, my neighbors are having a wedding or, or some, some, something's happening there that we know it appears to be breaking the health orders. Uh, I would think if police are busy, say, at a break and enter or some other crime that's in progress, that wouldn't uh, come ahead of that. How does it fall when, you, when police officers get called to a public health order violation rather than, say, a crime in progress. Yeah, so you're exactly right. We're going to prioritize always public safety is paramount. And so, you know, imminent public safety, and if there's a break and enter or, you know, an assault or something like that that's occurring, then, you know, that the COVID-type call will be, you know, less prioritized. We also have some other options. You know, we have, we work with bylaws who can, you know, reach out and make some phone calls and, and also go and attend, you know, businesses who may not be in compliance, restaurants, et cetera. Um, you know, and, and we also will use, and I know other agencies as well, we, you know, make phone calls, you know, when they're not able to attend, there's, you know, there's staff who, who are not, you know, on the roads who can actually pick up the phone and call and, uh, and, you know, try to have that, you know, conversation as opposed to us being there. And the other thing, you know, just to remember too, is, you know, every time we're having to go to these, you know, different events, we're, we're exposing our police officers to, you know, the potential to the virus and we're taking all the safety precautions, but, you know, I think every, you know, police chief and, you know, is really concerned about our staffing and we want to keep them safe. Um, so when the real emergencies are occurring, and I'm not saying this isn't an emergency, but when, you know, the the imminent public safety emergencies are there, that we have, you know, our frontline officers are there to respond. And, you know, the more we're having to go to, you know, large gatherings or events, you know, to, to enforce public health orders, the more that, you know, our officers are being exposed. Uh, you mentioned that four tickets were issued of these 19 calls that came in. We've seen in other jurisdictions uh, tickets issued for poker games and card games. Do you know any of the details on, on why these particular four calls did lead to tickets? Yeah, I, I know two were for uh, for large gatherings in a residence, um, you know, parties that were in excess of 10 people. One was for a, um, you know, a place of worship, a church. Um, and, and like I said, you know, by and large, you know, our faith community and our, our public here are, are, you know, abiding by the rules, um, you know, and, and we're not, you know, and, and they're following what, what's being asked. And if they're giving education, they're, they're also ad- adhering to that. But, you know, so we did have, we did issue four of the 19 calls we attended. And, and one of those was the $2,300 uh, version uh, for a large event uh, at a church. But beyond that, uh, like I said, most everyone was, was fairly good. And not to, to focus on where people are, are skirting the rules and trying to get a, around it, but you mentioned something in that officers, uh, we know, can't just go into a home. We've also unfortunately heard stories of people hiding under beds, hiding in closets, and when there's a knock on the door, uh, making it look like no one is there. So that's got to be frustrating, too, if a police officer is taking the time out of his or her shift answering this call, knowing that you come to the door, there's something going on, but people are now hiding in the home. 
Yeah, I mean, it's silly. And, I, you know, I, we, we love when people say, well, don't you have anything better to do? And you know what? We do. <laughs> we don't need to be going to your house and, and you know, babysitting because you can't follow the rules and, and, you know, keep everyone safe. So, yeah, we'd rather be out there, you know, trying to prevent crime and, and dealing with the more serious stuff. And our officers, you know, who are attending, and I'm, I'm talking about police officers all across B.C., you know, who also get quite a bit of, you know, um, you know verbal abuse um, for trying to do their job and trying to uphold the, the you know, the orders. And, uh, you know, so the fact that people are hiding, and I, I mean, quite frankly, it's silly. And I know, you know, you get the calls as well, the people that completely disagree with the rules or people who think this is fake. And, you know, regardless of what your opinions are, you know, it's we're trying to keep our community safe. And, and you know, we're seeing the backside of this, hopefully, in the in the new year. And work with us. And uh, we're, we're not trying to be, you know, the heavy hand. We want to work with people to keep our community safe. Are you concerned that now that we know the restrictions in BC are going to go through the holidays, that you're going to be getting more calls? Um, certainly, yeah. It's uh, we would rather not. We would rather, you know, this. We have some time now. Everyone now knows that what Christmas will look like. Uh, I think we're all disappointed, myself included. I mean, we we all hoped that we would be able to change this and have Christmas with our families and and do the things we like to do. Um, so now we have a couple of weeks, I think, as, as families and as, as neighbors and community to talk about how this looks this year and how we can support each other. And, uh, you know, we're, we're going to have to assess if the calls become, you know, you know, what level that we can actually respond to um, if it does become, you know, quite large. Um, but, yeah, I do have a concern that we'll, we'll see more and more calls as we get further into the season. All right. Uh, well, Chief uh, Sear, thanks so much for joining us uh, to talk more about this today. Uh, we'll talk to you again soon, I'm sure, but thanks again. Thanks, Jill. You take care. Well, some news that was shared yesterday on social media shocked a lot of people. Joe Arve, a high-profile lawyer in this province, working for decades as one of Canada's leading constitutional litigators, passed away on Sunday at the age of 71. His obituary reads, in part, Joe was a lawyer who helped bring about sweeping legal changes to Canada, including same-sex marriage and the right to a medically-assisted death through decades of passionate courtroom advocacy. Joining me now to talk a little bit more about the legacy of Joe Arve is Wally Opal, who uh, you will know is a former judge, a former politician, a current lawyer, and someone who knew Joe Arve. Wally Opal, thanks so much for being with us. Not at all. My pleasure. Uh, I know you also were, were shocked, like so many of us, to see this news and to hear of the passing of Joe Arve. Uh, what stands out for you for this most incredible career and, and all of the things that Joe Arve accomplished? Well, he was a once-in-a-lifetime advocate that who came across the system, and he he left a huge imprint. You know, he was a he was a probably the leading constitutional lawyer in Canada. And I tell you why constitutional law is so important, uh, Jill. Your 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 uh, listeners may may uh, may help them to understand why the Constitution is so important. Because in 1982 was when we got our Charter of Rights and Freedoms under the Trudeau government. Prior to that, we didn't have a Charter of Rights and Freedoms. For instance, if during World War II, the uh, Japanese were interned uh, by federal government legislation, and had there been a Charter of Rights and Freedoms at that time, that law would have been set aside because it, it breached equality rights. It was arbitrary, and it was unfair. So the Charter really gave Canadians rights that they did not have before. And Joe was at the forefront in uh, in ensuring that 
different groups achieve those rights. And I'll give you another example was the uh, the safe injection site in in BC in Vancouver. All the uh, healthcare uh, authorities and the medical experts told us that drug addiction is a health issue and not necessarily a criminal issue. So the experts thought that the the ideal situation would be to uh, to uh, have a place where drug addicts could go and be safely injected uh, under safe conditions, and uh, and it would not be a crime. However, it was a criminal offense to possess drugs. So we needed help from the federal government to uh, to make that what would be unlawful. Uh, behavior lawful by by sanctioning a safe injection site and the, the federal government refused so joe arve was the lead lawyer for the province and for other people to ensure that that law was set aside and that the that the province would have the right to have a safe injection site i know a little bit about this because i was the attorney general of british columbia at the time and we joined that argument to ensure that this was a health issue and not a criminal issue. So Joe led the way to ensuring that the safe injection site, which was a success and has been a success in saving lives, was uh, was saved from uh, federal government intrusion. Uh, and when you look at, at that being such a great example, and also uh, that he, you know, he was changing the law and, and fighting for for gay rights, for same sex marriage, for medically assisted dying, uh, what was it about him? Because he seems like he was always really ahead of the times. Well, yeah, you know, I think the best way of describing it, Jill, is that he was going uphill. When you're fighting existing legislation, laws that have been enacted then you are going uphill because you're telling the parla- telling the courts that the Parliament of Canada and the Parliament of the Provinces has a- enacted legislation that is unfair, contrary to human rights, and is arbitrary and all of those other things. So you're really uh, arguing against existing authority, and you are going uphill. And Joe uh, did that on a number of occasions, uh, the assisted uh, uh Suicide legislation was another example where there was a lot of pushback against that legislation coming into effect. And Joe fought for those rights and fought for minority rights. The the um, uh, to fight against existing government legislation on behalf of people who are disadvantaged and people who are not in a position to argue against overwhelming government legislation is really the height of advocacy and joe did that in uh, and he did a great job in doing that and making sure that fairness was achieved at the end of the day and, and what do you think it was that drove him that made him so passionate about that well i think that you know he's obviously a unique uh unique individual in that he was passionate about human rights passionate about fairness and uh, to ensure that people receive equal treatment before the law and it's not always easy to do that as I said a moment ago, because you're doing that against laws that have been in the books for for many years. And uh, so he, uh, like many other people in the profession, wanted to ensure that uh, equality was achieved. And uh, Joe did the uh, did the, the right thing by going against government legislation, going against people who uh, were opposed to him. And as I said a moment ago, it's going uphill. 
against laws that have been in the books for many years. And he did that, and he did that with a lot of passion, and he was committed to ensure that uh, equality was achieved, fairness was achieved by people who needed that. Uh, I know he got uh, the Order of Canada, I think it was 2017, uh, the Order of BC. He certainly has been recognized in the past for his work. Uh, do you think he was recognized enough or that we understand enough how uh, the laws are in this country and, and how many of these laws have been changed because of him? Well, I think uh, I think more of us begin to understand, particularly I think the media has been, been excellent in uh, in telling the public about what he achieved, but these, uh, but it's important to know that these fights go on, and uh, you know there are people, uh, sex trade workers and others, who are disadvantaged in our society, and we do, we have to ensure that uh, that they receive equality and fairness under our democracy. The, Canada is perhaps the best country in the world, in as far as our justice system is concerned, in in many ways. However. There's a lot of work that still needs to be done. And uh, Joe took the, uh, took the initiatives to achieve uh, equality and fairness for those people who needed it. Uh, do you have any uh, personal memory or, or anything else that you wanted to share as far as, as this person who just touched so many lives, whether people met him or not? Well, I, he, uh, I knew him. Uh, and then uh, when I was on the Supreme Court, he appeared before me a number of times and uh, Similarly, he appeared before me when I was in the Court of Appeal on the Little Sisters case. And that was a case, as you know, involved the arbitrary unfairness of uh, seizing books that, uh, that, uh, that the, the CBSA people see uh, contrary to the equality rights and the fairness of those people the, who, uh, uh, who wanted those books. And uh, so... So and Joe fought uphill on that one, and uh, so no, I, 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 I was I'm an admirer of him and what he had done, and I think all Canadians uh, need to take the time and just realize just what a uh, excellent person that he was and what he achieved as far as fairness is concerned for our democracy. All right, we'll leave it there for today. Right. Wally Opal, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it so much. Always good to be with you, Jill. So, well, unfortunately, it is that time of year where people are busy, possibly more distracted than usual, throw in a pandemic, things can be even more stressful. And that means that cyber thieves are still working and trying to take advantage of that. So how do you protect yourself? We have an expert joining us now with some tips on that. Ilya Lavosky is a BCIT digital forensics and computer crime expert, as well as in instructor. Ilya, thanks so much for being with us today. Hi, Jill. Thank you for having me. Uh, it is that time of year, unfortunately. Uh, we, we've, saw, uh, we've seen already uh, some major companies uh, fall victim to malware, ransomware attacks. Uh, but on a, a smaller level as well, uh, people can uh, be the targets of cybercrime. So let's go through some of the things that people can do to make sure they're safe and that they're not taken advantage of. What are some of the things that you advise people of? Yeah, that is exactly correct. This time of the year, people should be much more wary from cyber scams than in any other time of the year. So a couple of things that people can pay attention to while they're doing their Christmas shopping. First of all, there is a lot of 
spoofed website, which would be website, which would be fake website, fake shopping sites designed to appear legitimate. And it's very easy to build a website those days. And someone with ill intentions can create a website that looks like Amazon, behaves like Amazon or eBay or any other shopping website. And when people use those websites, they need to be very careful. They need to pay attention to the web address and make sure that they are actually using the website they were planning to use, that they are actually logged in onto Amazon. One good tip would be to look for a small padlock that appeals to the left of the web address. That padlock says that the website is secured and all the communications to that website are encrypted. Another thing people can do is be very careful when they are clicking on different emails. And that's the time of the year when people would be getting more emails trying to steal their personal information. Uh, emails such as you won a prize or uh, sometimes because we are ordering a lot of items online, you would get an email saying that there's a problem with your shipment or your delivery. And if you click on that email, then you will be asked to enter your personal details. So a couple of tips when you go about that is hover with your mouse above the link before clicking it. And you will see on the bottom left corner of your internet browser where the actual address will take you. Sometimes it's going to be something very different. Yeah. Sorry, I was just, are, are cyber criminals getting better and, and more uh, believable in that uh, the websites they send out, whether they're uh, impersonating better known shopping sites that are they finding ways to, to better trick people? Yeah, definitely, definitely. They are and they are learning and they're getting better with every year. And as a simple example, you can create a website that looks like Amazon and the website will be www.amazon.ca. But instead of the O in Amazon, you will see a zero. And sometimes it's not so easy to spot. So you will go to that website. Another thing that they're doing, they are um, following the trend, right? So this year's trend is obviously COVID-19. And there are new uh, emerging scams related to COVID-19 that those people are trying to pull off. And unfortunately, I believe that some of them will be even uh, very successful. Uh, which makes sense, I, I suppose, that why wouldn't criminals try and take advantage of that and uh, take advantage of something that's top of mind for so so many people? So so hopefully uh, people will see that uh, and not fall victim to that. Uh, what about when you're out and about? A lot of people use public Wi-Fi, uh, whether they're at a restaurant or a mall or somewhere. Is there a concern uh, if you're doing any type of shopping or anything with personal information when you're on Wi-Fi? Definitely, definitely. That was one of the points I was hoping to mention. You mustn't, you cannot, it's even not not advisable, don't do it, just don't do it. Don't use public Wi-Fi for shopping because it's very easy for someone who knows how to do it to get your personal information through a hacked public Wi-Fi network. You never know the website you're shopping to, what kind of protection you the website uses. So if you are sitting at Starbucks and you're shopping at some uh, clothing website or anything of that kind, and your personal private information, such as your credit card number, goes to that website, the criminal can be sitting right next to you and using his laptop in order to intercept that information and steal your credit card numbers. That's definitely a concern. 
And what about pop-up ads? And you may have touched on this because a lot of times when you're shopping or you're doing online shopping, something will pop up. It'll be something that's related somewhat to probably whatever you were searching for. Are those dangerous? Definitely, but depends on which website you're shopping on. If you're using eBay, for example, or Amazon, although those sites don't use pop-up ads very often, uh, I would say it's more reliable. But if you are using a different website and all of a sudden you have a pop-up message saying you want a price or we have a promotion and clicking on that pop-up address will redirect you to a different website, definitely be wary because that potentially could be a scam trying to steal your personal information. Uh, does it really come down to uh, websites that you trust, companies that you trust? Definitely, definitely does. But, you know, with the COVID pandemic, a lot of people try to make honest living selling things online. So I can't say, you know, ignore everyone and just do your shopping on Amazon or eBay or one of the big ones. But I am saying that you have to be very careful before shopping on an unknown website for the first time and look for the signs such as the padlock that I mentioned or check that the web address starts with a specific set of letters called HTTPC. So if you see an HTTPC before the website address, it means that the website is secured and protected, which is not very common for uh, fake websites. And whenever uh, you go to check out something or to pay for something online, oftentimes there are uh, different methods that you're offered and you pick a payment method. What's the safest way to do that? Right. So definitely don't use e-transfer or direct deposit. Um, That's not safe. Same thing goes uh, per cryptocurrency. If somebody offers you to pay him with cryptocurrency, that's irreversible. So what I would suggest is either use credit cards because often credit card companies, they have some sort of an insurance for those types of purchases. And if you do use a credit card, there are a couple of things that you can do. For example, you can enable purchase alerts on your credit card. You can disable international purchases in case somebody steals your card and try to buy something with it. Um, Obviously, always, and we mentioned it before, use your home or cellular network when paying for something. And another layer of protection would be using a third-party payment method, such as Apple Pay or Google Wallet or PayPal, because they hide your credit card number, and that serves as a secondary layer of protection. So nobody will get your actual number anyway. And what about the devices you're using, whether you're using your home computer or your phone and making sure that things are up to date? Yes, that's definitely important. Uh, Maybe less important as per what kind of device you're using, but it's definitely important to make sure that your operating system, whether it's Windows or Mac or Android, and your software that you're using, such as an antivirus software, are up to date because it's a game of cat and mouse. And something new will come out tomorrow and the uh, antivirus companies and the window and Microsoft, they will come up with a solution and then again, something new and then they will come up with a solution. So you have to make sure that you are up to date with your software. All right. Any other advice or tips that you want to make sure people have as we're kind of in the thick of uh, shopping and the busy pre-holidays? Yeah, definitely. Um, be very vigilant, be very aware online. And you know that according to Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre, as of November 13 this year, 
Almost 22,000 Canadians fell victims to online fraud and they lost almost $90 million. Hmm. So I would really hate to see those numbers grow. And please, if you have any shadow of a doubt, stop, think about what you're doing, think about what happened. Maybe ask someone for advice. And most importantly, don't ever share your personal information with anyone before making sure that it's absolutely necessary. What do you do, though? Uh, you raise an interesting point. That's a lot. $90 million, 22,000 Canadians. So what do you do if you realize you have fallen victim to one of these scams? Well, it very depends on what kind of scam and how did you pay, right? If you uh, paid with a credit card, for example, or... Um, if you use some sort of a method that I mentioned before, like PayPal or Apple Pay, sometimes you can retract those funds. Sometimes you can speak with the companies, they can reimburse you, they have protection methods. If you paid with cryptocurrency, which is very common those days, unfortunately, or if you paid with uh, cash money, very often there's no way back. Obviously, you have to complain. You have to file a complaint with the Canadian Anti-Fraud Center, and sometimes maybe they can help you track it down and get some of the money back. But often, especially if you're using cryptocurrency, there's not much that you can do about that. All right. Good advice. Uh, Unfortunate if people have already fallen victim in those scenarios, but definitely uh, good advice uh, during this time of year, all year really, but especially right now. Uh, Ilya, thank you so much for your time and for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Jill. Leah Moody is an employment lawyer at Semfiro to Markin and joins us on the line now. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure to be with you, Jill. Thanks. It can be a bit confusing, and I know we're talking about something that's going to be happening in the future, people getting the vaccine, some people going back physically to the workplace. Uh, Do we know the answers to to questions about whether or not employers can make this a requirement? We do, yeah. And and I just have to say, what a pleasure it is to actually be talking about a vaccine at this point, right? Like the light is at the end of the tunnel. But yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's been sort of a confusing landscape over the last couple of months in terms of employment law. But I do think that it's a fairly clear answer when it comes to employers being able to require their employees to get a vaccine. And the answer is that they can't. At least they cannot mandate it. They can't require it as a term and condition of employment. You know, they can certainly encourage it. Uh, They can ask for it. I imagine that many employers will be doing exactly that, but they cannot force somebody to get a vaccination. Could they do that if things have changed in that people who have been working from home uh, maybe want to come back to the workplace? Could they say if you're not vaccinated, you have to continue working at home? So you're still working and employed. But if you want to come back to the workplace, you need to be vaccinated? Absolutely. I I think that um, if you are going to have a certain group of employees that are not going to be vaccinated, then there's still going to be an obligation on the employer to continue to take all the same steps that they've been taking over the last almost year. Right. So that includes asking certain individuals to work from home. It includes, you know, making sure that there's a hand sanitization station. It includes um, mask wearing if required or if the number is big enough. So I do think that as long as that individual is still employed, you can still uh, you can ask that individual to take certain steps to continue to keep the workplace in the actual office or in the actual company safe. 
in Ontario today, the health minister was talking about uh, the fact that residents who do get the COVID-19 vaccine uh, will be issued some kind of proof, whether it's a card or a certificate, something that proves you did receive uh, the shot that you have been vaccinated. Uh, that uh, we're thinking will be important uh, when traveling. Uh, and, and they also talked about for work purposes as well. So would that be something that a, an employer could require, that if you are somebody that's back in the office, that that is the requirement that you have that that uh, health record? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, it, I, how you end up storing that information is, is one thing. Uh, you obviously want to make sure that we're not running afoul of any sort of uh, privacy laws. But, you know, many companies right now, I know to the extent that they are allowing individuals to come into the workplace, they are requiring many of them, myself included, to take uh, like a COVID questionnaire, sort of confirming that you haven't developed any new symptoms, you haven't been traveling out of the country, you know, requiring proof of this, you know, vaccination passport or license or whatever we want to call it is pretty much just an extension of that same rule. So an employer can absolutely require that you attest to or prove in some way that you are okay to be in the workplace but they just they can't store that information or use it for any other purpose. Right, because that kind of leads to the whole issue of medical records and, and being forced to share medical records with people. Has, has the pandemic changed kind of what our expectation is or, or what we're, we're going to be required to share? Not really. Um, I think that you have a lot of individuals who are just naturally more forthcoming with that information because of how serious it is. But at least from a legal perspective, None of that has changed so far. So, you know, as individuals, as employees, you still have a reasonable expectation of privacy in the workplace. And that certainly extends to your medical information, uh, including specifics. Uh, so do you see a scenario, though, where there is a workplace where, and again, you can work from home, but to actually physically be somewhere, you have to show you've had the vaccine. Uh, what if somebody lied about it? And, and I mean, I'm hoping it doesn't get to that point, but just trying to cover off every scenario, uh, would you then be liable? What would, what would the repercussions be there? Yeah, there's no doubt about it that this has created some, you know, thorny situations, right? And so much of it is is unprecedented. I think that, you know, at the end of the day, though, employment law remains largely the same. And if you are an employee who has lied to your employer in any capacity, that can be grounds for a dismissal. And I think that when you're lying to your employer about something as critical as workplace safety and health, uh, then I think that employees need to be very mindful of the fact that an employer can absolutely terminate you uh, if you do decide to be dishonest about, uh, about your vaccination history. What about places uh, such as healthcare centers in that d- different places of employment obviously are, are very different? Uh, there, there's no assumption that healthcare workers will automatically get the vaccination. What if it's somebody who's a frontline worker? Yeah, I, I know. I hear you on, on you know, the, that question because it's just sort of you almost think that there's got to be some sort of carve out for those sorts of high risk workplaces like hospitals or, or particularly long term care facilities. But um, it's, 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 you still cannot mandate vaccinations for those kinds of workplaces. And I think, you know, Dr. Bonnie Henry said this week that they're certainly going to be strongly, in, strongly encouraging everybody in those situations to be immunized. And I think she even said uh, if they don't believe in immunization, then they should look for other things to do. Um, but uh, but it, it applies across the board regardless of your position or the workplace.
Okay, and it's interesting because it's come up a few times, and I know, and not saying that that COVID is the same as the flu, but it has in the past come up with the idea of flu shots in that some health workplaces and frontline places have strongly recommended it. And if people don't, uh, they have to take a lot of other precautions, whether it was wearing a mask or doing something else. And, and same with visitors, uh, you had to, but it was all yeah. done on the honor system. And, and I'm not sure the honor system is, is going to be enough or going to work in this scenario. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think that if we've seen anything over the last couple of months, it's that this situation, for whatever reason, has become very politicized and very polarizing. And so I think that you've got people sort of really digging in their heels with their respective positions for any number of reasons. Um, And so I do think that it's going to be uh, a major issue going forward. But my hope is that, you know, the vaccinations will roll out over the next couple of months. If there's a certain group of employees that don't want to get vaccinated, those employers, those companies can just sort of continue to take all the same measures that we're taking right now in order to keep their staff safe. And then once we reach that point of herd immunity, uh, we will be in sort of a better position to, fingers crossed, return to something resembling normal. All right. Sounds good. Leah, so great to check in with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Well, Conservative MP Dan Albus has once again put forward a private member's bill, and it has to do with the free movement of Canadian-made beer, spirits, and wine. And Dan Albus joins me on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Thanks so much for being on the show. Hey, glad to be here, Jill. It's deja vu all over again. It is. And when Ben Dooley, who produces the show, said, hey, do you want to talk to Dan Albus about this today? I thought, didn't I talk to Dan Albus about this 20 years ago? Are we still talking about this? Well, it wasn't quite 20 years ago, but it was (laughs) about nine years ago where this this came up. And uh, I took a run at the issue. We we, we wanted to make sure that free trade of Canadian wine wasn't a crime in this country. Uh, And we made a lot of progress. There's four provinces out of 10 uh, that allow for the free trade of, of wine. I'm happy to say British Columbia. Uh, thank you, former Premier Christy Clark, for supporting me on that. But, uh, you know, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Nova Scotia have also joined in the uh, Team Canada approach uh, when it comes to uh, beer, wine and spirits. And now we, we just need to get the rest of a confederation on board. And look, like if you go back to the original tapes, the original debates of confederation, everyone was saying, hey, we'll be one country, we'll have a national economy, we'll trade with one another, we'll all be good. We still have to get this fixed. And uh, the government in 2017 put together a Canadian free trade agreement. But guess what wasn't included in it, Jill? This subject. Right. And there's a working group that they put together, but the working group hasn't been working. So what this bill essentially does would make a small change to the Canada Post Act so that if anyone wants to share, um, you know, an award winning uh, wine or spirit, for example, uh, Turner Valley Brewery won the world's best uh, Bavarian style Hefwes. I, I, I Sorry, I'm not German. I'm sure I just axe murdered that. But uh, they won it at the 2020 World Beer Awards. Um, you can't get that in British Columbia. You can't get that at the LCBO. This is the crazy part about how we allow these liquor monopolies to tell us what we can and what we can't. And with this pandemic, we know people are relying more on online. They're ordering and getting through home delivery. Why can't they do the same with great Canadian products, particularly, Jill? Because if you talk to a lot of these breweries, you talk to these artists and distillers, you talk to the wineries, they are seeing foot traffic gone. 
It's, mm-hmm. it's not happening. So people are going to lose their shirts uh, and uh, you know, unless we give them a bigger market. And this is one way we can do it. Uh, so I think where some of the confusion lies, though, is if you back in the days when we were traveling a bit more freely, you could go to the Okanagan, to the wineries. Uh, I went there with family from Ontario. We did ship wine to Ontario. Some wineries would do it. Some didn't. Uh, so is there kind of a, a the law is interpreted in different ways? Yeah, so Canada Post and FedEx and, the, and whatnot will not send to provinces uh, that have said, no, we will not allow this due to our, our provincial liquor laws. Look, New Brunswick took FedEx to court, uh, and uh, they ended up uh, deciding uh, to discontinue that case. Um, but, but this is the problem we have. There's no set approach. And that's why Canada Post is supposed to ship things from coast to coast to coast. And as a federal crown corporation, this is something that we can do to make life a little bit easier. Now, there is some, some uh, protections in the bills. If provinces, you know, really get, uh, you, know, uh, you know, really upset about this. Um, but I've created a system uh, in this bill. Uh, hopefully, Parliament will, will hear it and, and hopefully vote for it, which would allow for more reciprocity. For example, there are some provinces that British Columbia says, sure, uh, if a BCer wants to, to buy your, your beer, wine, or, or liquor, they can send it into British Columbia. But can a BC winery send it into Ontario? No. And the problem we run into, it's easier for someone to, to buy foreign wines and bring them into Canada, regardless of what province they live. Or it's easier in some cases to send to Tokyo uh, than Toronto. That's a problem. Well, and it also, I think, it doesn't make a lot of sense to people when you go into a store and a, a bottle of wine from somewhere in South America is cheaper than a bottle of wine from the Okanagan. Well, again, inputs, uh, there's, there's a lot more cost coming to it. Like, let's put this in context. There are certain vintages, like a vintage of an Australian wine, which is more than the entire Canadian wine industry put together. So, you know what? Um, if we want to have not just uh, great wines that win awards, like Popular Grove uh, in Penticton, they won a gold medal in October uh, for its 2016 blend called The Legacy. Can you get that in other parts of the country? No. And so, you know, if we want to, to have these world-class wines and be able to compete with the Chiles, with the Spains, and, 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 you know, and, and the Australians, um, we have to support our domestic market first. But we still haven't gotten our, our, our minds around this, and it's because of the, and pardon the language, those bloody liquor monopolies. They believe that they can stop the progress Uh, of the internet. They think that they can tell consumers uh, what they can and cannot get. If you look to to their store shelves, there's going to be things that you like, but guess what? You may not see uh, some of these things like Alberta Premium Cask Rye, uh, Strength Rye, scooped up the 2020 World Whiskey of the Year in the influential Jim Murray's uh, Whiskey Bible, right? You you can't get that in, uh, it's it's an Alberta rye, but you can't get that in British Columbia. You can in in Ontario. So this is the problem. You should be able to go online, buy, ship, and sip. That's what this bill can do. That's why I'm asking all parties that supported my previous bill to help. Let's get this done. Do you think you have the support or how confident are you you can get it done this time? I'm hopeful that if every person phones up their MP and says, look, (laughs) 21st century, I want to be able to order like the 21st century. If we can get to that point, uh, Jill, then we will do well. Um, but again, the government said that it's setting up this working group. 
that hasn't worked. So at some point, someone's got to take leadership. And last time I checked, that's why we have a federal government to lead the country. Uh, are you getting any uh, pushback or, 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 or I guess pushback is the word uh, from people saying, look, we're in the midst of a pandemic. Maybe this isn't the top priority right now. Well, you know, when is it going to be a priority? We've been talking about this for how long? And again, as I said earlier, the pandemic is causing a lot of these small family wineries who've put everything, their heart and souls into their operation. They don't have the foot traffic. They maybe not have enough quantity to be able to sell to the liquor distribution branch. So it's in your provincial stores. But they can make money if you give them a market. And this is a way that they can make market. And some Canadians would love to try some of the uh, wines in the Similkameen or the Okanagan Valley. Uh, some people in, in, in the Okanagan may want to try Niagara or uh, Prince Edward County. But right now, pardon me, but right now, it's not open to all Canadians. And this bill will make it open to all Canadians. And you know what? Uh, the pandemic is here. Let's support these businesses. People are already using uh, all sorts of things for home delivery. Why we would not say, if this is the trend, why don't we allow our wineries, our artisan distillers, and our craft breweries to be able to survive this pandemic? Well, uh, since you put it that way, I think actually it will get uh, or will continue to get a lot of support. And like you said, if people make their wishes known to their MPs, uh, Dan Albus, we'll check back in with you uh, if there's an update on this. But thanks so much for joining us today to talk a bit more about it. Thanks. And I'll keep coming back until we get this done. (laughs) All right. Sounds good. Well, you might have heard uh, part of this story on the news, a BC principal putting out a message on COVID-19 and some of the stigma that is still unfortunately attached to the virus. Rob Clark is the principal at Silverdale Elementary in Mission and joins me on the line now. Thanks so much for taking some time. Uh, No problem. Uh, You put out this message. I can only imagine you've been getting a lot of feedback in response to it. I have, yeah. A little bit of unexpected feedback, yeah. <laughs> uh, so take us back to what happened and what prompted you to put out the message. Uh, it just, it's been a, a little bit since uh, this interaction happened, about uh, a little more than a week, and just talking to the one child about their experience of having COVID-19 and the fears that they had associated with it and not being able to process it well, uh, brought up the, I felt the need to talk about it. And without, I, I don't want to put the child's name or, or, or draw any attention to that, but I mean, I would imagine it's frightening. Not only are we dealing with the, this scenario of distancing and, and wearing masks and, and trying to stay safe from this virus, uh, which is already causing a lot of stress, uh, then for a child to actually get the virus, that's got to be a whole other level. Yeah, it definitely would be a whole other level for them. And it was in this case, for sure. Uh, can you say around what age the child is or was? Is... I, I prefer not. They're okay. younger age, for sure. sure, elementary age. Uh, so what kind of conversations are being had then? Because we have talked a lot about the school system and all of the measures that are, that are in place. We do know that, that kids do have the virus, though, because we've seen uh, the, the notifications and the exposure letters that go out. So what kind of conversations are, are being had then to try and ease the concerns that children might have? Uh, at schools right now, we focus a lot on social emotional learning, in particular, just being um, relating to students about their experiences they're having and showing understanding and empathy towards others, as well as talking about the reasons why we have the protocols in place we have. Those are the main focuses right now. We, we increase the amount of counseling support, youth care worker support. Um, we, we connect as a community and a staff, especially. Uh, seeing how each other is doing, because we understand how our emotions play into the children's emotions. 
And it's got to be tough as an educator, uh, as a principal, not only are you hearing from children who are anxious because of the situation and anxious because of all of this, what's happening, but then on top of that, anxious of what might happen or what could happen if you actually test positive for the virus. Yeah, for for a student, especially if they don't um, have a lot of information about uh, COVID-19 or the information they have is very limited to their, their understanding of the world, especially the younger they are, the harder it is for them to understand what does it actually mean for them uh, because they only get bits and pieces of information. And they, they understand what they hear from those around them and what they're feeling based on the stress levels of people around them. And the concern for me is, is always to make sure that they have a, a broader picture so that way they, they get more than just that there's a concern that they could expose someone else, causing them harm, or that they themselves could die from it. And so how do you balance that in that we take it seriously, and the reason we're doing this is because it can be a deadly disease, more so in people who are, are compromised or older, but we have unfortunately seen seen younger people as well. Uh, but it is, I think we could agree, more dangerous for, for older people compared to, to students. So how do you balance that message that you have to take it so seriously, but you yourself as a child, as a young child, uh, you're not at the highest risk? I, I, I I guess the best way to do it is to, to talk to them specifically about what the risk factors associated can be and are uh, for somebody that they're a, of their age, but also understanding, too, that we interact continuously with people of different generations and that we take personal responsibility in, in following excellent hand washing and wearing a mask when it's appropriate and practicing social distancing and keeping the conversation focused on the things that we can do, but also ensuring that COVID-19 is not our only conversation we're having with children. We're talking about celebrations and rites of passage and other things that we can do right now and find positive things and create positive experiences in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, right, which has got to be so important uh, that uh, we spend a lot of time talking about it uh, here on this radio station, but uh, also uh, acknowledge that it's important to talk about other things as well and to have those light moments. Absolutely. Is it more difficult, do you think, than with elementary school students because of the age group? Uh, it's, I think it's, it, every, every age group comes with its own challenge. Uh, elementary students are very limited in their access to technology comparison to their older high school, either siblings or, or other people like that. And the information they get tends to be more from within the home or from within school right now. Uh, where their access to social media is a lot less. And so they're getting less of that exposure. And so the conversations um, can be very limited to what they know. Right. And and I guess, too, you're also dealing with maybe, like you said, not so much at this age, but you never know uh, somebody that age goes home, they've got an older sibling who maybe does have more access to mm-hmm. to other news sites or to other stories. They then, you know, kids can be uh, maybe not even meaning to be mean, but can then pass on information that maybe causes even more stress. Yeah, which I think is the reason why, um, well, it was one of the reasons I did the video is basically just to bring awareness to Start having the conversation with your kids if you haven't been doing so already. Uh, open that line of communication because if your kids are getting the information from their older sibling or from social media or just not getting enough information, they're getting little bits and pieces, they're not sure how to process it. And as parents, you were our mo- parents are the most trusted person in a kid's life. And if as parents we can take on that conversation that we might not have realized, like I didn't have that level of conversation uh, with my own kids until after this situation happened.
Hmm. And so, and so, how did it change the messaging or how you spoke with your kids? It's more talking continuously about um, not just focusing on COVID, but talking about all the other awesome things that have been happening in our lives because of it. All the all the time we've got to spend together as a family, um, the new experiences, and learning how to be creative with our time, and being much more intentional about our relationships and establishing positive relationships with people around us, even though we can't necessarily play with them directly, but we can still have that communication with them on a regular basis, like parents who live far away, grandparents, those things. And that's got to be, I would imagine, one of the toughest things, particularly for younger kids, is why can't you go and give grandma and grandpa a hug? Or why can't we go to their house now for Christmas and do this? That's got to be so tough. It's got to be tough, and I think that's why it's important to talk about it, because um, we want to make sure that kids know it's, it's not because they're going necessarily going to spread COVID to those grandparents is that we're just being responsible right now and we're following what we need to do. Uh, Do you think there needs to be more supports then as far as uh, mental health and emotional supports uh, to make sure that kids aren't dealing with this or perhaps not not talking about things that are in, in turn going to make things worse for them? I think that mental health supports in schools are doing a pretty good job this year. Um, I find this much more of a topic conversation that we're having. I hope that uh, those mental health supports are continuing within the community, although I do know it's access is always a difficult piece, especially when people are at home a lot more and not able to go out and access those things. And do you think enough is being done as far as measures in place to stop transmission in schools? I do. Yes, I, I find that uh, we follow very strict protocols. We're intentional about it. We make sure um, mask wearing is happening for adults. And, and one of the things I did just because I think it's important is we bought a bunch of masks that have fun faces on them because we don't want it to be a scary thing for kids. And I would imagine even a, a, a seemingly little thing like that can make a huge difference. Yeah, and we, we explain why. We explain why we wear masks to students um, and why the rules are in place the way they are why we wash our hands so much and and why we need to be responsible as individuals. Yeah. What's it going to be like then uh, as a principal, you know uh, what what, what a lot of the kids are going through and and the stress levels. What's it going to be like uh, saying goodbye to the kids for Christmas break and and reassuring them that, you know, they will be coming back to school at some point and and that things are going to be different. uh, But uh, how do you kind of reassure uh, the students? I I spend most of my time uh, building relationships with families and students and staff members and it's part of an ongoing conversation about how things look different and and we accept that and we learn more from it and we talk a lot about being resilient um, and showing love to other people whenever we can and talking about appreciating other people and moving and talking about the things we get to look forward to the things we get to hope for the things that we get to do over this Christmas break time that we might not have been able to do um, if we weren't all together the way we're going to be. All right. Well, it's a, it's a very positive message, and uh, I know there's been a lot of response uh, to the message you put out as well. Uh, Principal Rob Clark, thanks so much for coming on the show and talking about it today. My pleasure. Well, we found out yesterday that the restrictions in this province will at least be going to January 8th through the holidays. That has a lot of people kind of rethinking what they are going to do for Christmas. So a lot of people emailing me with some interesting ideas on how they are either going to postpone it. One listener saying, leaving the tree up, postponing it 
until July. I just had another listener email saying that she is still going to cook the turkey, uh, saying I am sad that I won't be spending Christmas with my children and grandchildren. My plan is to cook a couple of turkeys, cut them in half, and give them to my children, along with all of the dressing and the gravy. That is the favorite part of their dinner. I will spend Christmas with my husband and my mom, who is 92. That's nice, making doing all the work of the dinner and then not even having the benefit, the end result of sharing it with all the family in one room. But great that someone is doing that. I would imagine others are doing that as well. Well, if you're looking for some other digital ways to enjoy the holidays, keeping within your bubble to the immediate household, following the rules as best you can, well, our show contributor, John Jang, has gone looking for some tips on how to make that digital Christmas just a little bit easier. Good afternoon, Jill. We suspected that it would turn out this way, but now we know for sure Christmas is going to look quite different this year. Yes, if you're used to having multiple family members come and go over Christmas and getting together and having those large dinners together, now you need to do it remotely. This Christmas is, and these holidays are going to be different, and they need to be different. But we have to recognize we're not alone in this. These are things that we need to take to protect our communities, and we across the globe are dealing with this pandemic. Now, chances are you've never done Christmas like this before, and most of us haven't. So when it comes to organizing a digital Christmas, how do you get started? What can you actually do? Well, We've got some answers because I spoke with our friend Andy Berard. He's a technology and digital lifestyle expert at HandyAndyMedia.com. And he wants you to know that, first of all, it's a lot easier than you think. Well, John, you know, if there was ever a time that we were going to have, like, a COVID Christmas, you know, we live in a great opportunity because we have the technology literally in our pockets to allow for that. And, and it, we can make it really easy because the thing about technology is everybody thinks it's really hard. You know, there's generational uh, uh, proficiency on technology, but everybody has a smartphone and they know how to use apps. And I think we already have apps on our phone that can make this Christmas actually quite easy to connect with family and friends this holiday season. I love that point because uh, over the past few months, a lot of us have gotten really familiar with apps like Zoom and FaceTime. So we're just repurposing some of these things we already know and use into a holiday-themed program. But Andy, let's consider some Zoom alternatives because a lot of us use Zoom at work. And the last thing we want is to be reminded of work when we're trying to connect with our friends and family over the holidays. So what are some alternatives that people should know about? Well, that's right, John. I think a lot of people are zoomed out uh, just because they use it for work all the time. So, you know, that might be the best thing for your family. It depends. But one thing that uh, a lot of people don't realize is that you're already connected to your family on Facebook, most likely. And Facebook has a lot of features in there to allow you to communicate in groups. For instance, they have the Facebook Messenger Rooms. And you'll see this when you're on Facebook, right on the top, they'll say start a room. And you can invite everybody, other people, and have a video call, multi-level video call. And Facebook allows up to 50 people. So I'm not sure how big your family is, but that's a pretty big uh, family uh, Facebook call, I think. And I think that would be a great um, alternative to Zoom this holiday season because, like I said, you're you're already probably connected to your family. Mm -hmm. And it's great for older people who are not maybe proficient in Zoom. 
they do understand how to use Facebook and they can accept an invite, put their phone to their face and, and have that call. So it's a low tech, but high tech solution for staying connected this holiday season. Well, I think you're right. Like as a personal example, I've got family members in Korea who don't even speak English. They have Facebook too. And we just exchange emojis with one another because, well, you know, it's universal language. So the Facebook Messenger app, it's pretty much the main platform that we're talking about here. I mean, 50 people at a time in that group chat, that's enough to cover two family gatherings. And John, I got another hack uh, for with Facebook for uh, the Christmas day because you know opening presents is one of those magical moments for families to watch the kids, you know, and everybody gets to to watch that experience. But I have a really good hack. What you could do in Facebook is you can create groups, and I think everybody is in a group or not. Mm-hmm. But you create closed groups, so you can create a closed group for your family. And then do Facebook Live, which is that feature to do a live broadcast right through Facebook, into that specific group. So this is not Facebook Live to everybody you're Facebook friends with, just to that specific closed family group that you have. And it's great for grandparents to see and watch the grandkids open up uh, presents on Christmas morning. Well, that's really nice, because if you can't be there in person, the next best thing is to at least be a part of it through the screen. So that is a really convenient tool. And because you can control exactly who gets to watch the stream, you know, you can make sure that your boss or your ex, uh, they don't get to just randomly join all of a sudden and create this awkward situation. Yeah, if you're going to do this, I would test it out just beforehand before you you go live on it. But it's actually quite easy once you create that group. Right inside there, you can um, broadcast into that group. And there's actually a new feature that Facebook just has called Live With. So you can have two separate families broadcasting at the same time, taking turns. So if you have one pair of grandparents in one household and another one in another, you can have them both simultaneously broadcast live into that closed Facebook group for your family members. Now, if you don't want to use Facebook, if you maybe don't have Messenger, you might have the other very popular alternative, and that is WhatsApp. That's right. WhatsApp is one of the most popular um, chatting for our platforms and apps on, in the world, and that's because it's cross-platform. You know, you have people who use iPhones and then, you know, then you have people on Android, and WhatsApp actually brings that together. So you could actually have group video chats as well inside WhatsApp, and that's better if you have maybe smaller families. So if you can do up to eight people, and it's super easy to do. People are already texting using WhatsApp, but there are video features that people should definitely try this holiday season. The fact that it's a smaller size limit for the group chat, this would work really well for maybe the younger members of the family, siblings, cousins, things like that, because, you know, maybe you don't want the kids to join the adults table, so to speak, but you want them to socialize with each other. Yeah, it's great. And it's it's great for you, like we said, up to eight people. So you're, it could be your siblings if they're out of town or maybe your cousins, uh, but it's a great way and it's especially popular already with young people. But I just want to let the older people know that you do have that option as well. All right. That is Andy Barrar. He is a technology and digital lifestyle expert. You can find all of his work online at handyandymedia.com. Andy, really appreciate this. Thank you for making our digital Christmas just a little bit easier. Yep, my pleasure. Thanks.